We're the West Slap Pirates, and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports, with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above, as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Gentlemen, we got a lot to go over tonight. Um, obviously, uh, with a week under our belt uh, from the Mike Bajakian hire, um, obviously last week we had a wonderful conversation with uh, ESPN's Adam Rittenberg. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go back and listen to it. Uh, Adam had some amazing uh, insights on Bajakian and kind of Northwestern as a whole. So, you know, really, really great to talk to Adam Rittenberg. Um, but now with a week of kind of digesting the Mike Bajakian experience or maybe the, the history of Mike Bajakian, where he comes from, some of the, some of the systems he comes from, what we could expect to see from him here at Northwestern, uh, I, I think we should definitely start by talking about him. Obviously, we got signing day uh, on Wednesday um, and the bowl season starts up on Friday. If you have not yet signed up for the Westlaw Pirates Bowl Challenge, uh, head to our website, westlawpirates.com. There'll be a link to it there. Uh, we'll also have it up on, on Twitter and Facebook and all that jazz. Uh, but come join the the Bowl Challenge on ESPN. It's a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, we have, we have a good time with it. So uh, we'll we'll finish up talking a little bit about Bowls. But uh, let's dive in and talk a little uh, new Northwestern offensive coordinator, Mike Bajakian. Yeah, so I think, that, I mean, the subtext is that we're, as as we the like the more we've learned right i think our immediate reaction when this when this news broke um fortuitously the the day after we talked to adam um i, we I think were, it was like right after i hit upload on the on the pod it was yeah. like formally announced yeah which i mean it was not bad right like that's 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 pretty good timing i think overall but um yeah so so pretty much um immediately we, our our reaction was kind of like well, I should say our reaction back when we heard that this was going to be the name, we were kind of like, "Ooh, I like I I don't know." Uh my my immediate gut reaction was, "Hasn't BC been bad at offense uh of late?" And um not a guy that was on, you know, kind of our our test list or checklist, but I think the more that we've learned, the more that we've dug in, the more that we've heard, the more and more excited we get. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we're going to dig into a lot of the specifics of this, but um, I think maybe one mistake that Northwestern Nation may have made, um, and I won't say mistake, but obviously a lot of us, whether it was us or Teddy Greenstein or Stu Mandel or whoever, you know, running down lists of potential candidates, maybe one mistake that we might have made a little bit is not thinking the way Pat Fitzgerald might think. We tried, right? We tried. We definitely tried. Uh, and I don't mean that as a negative at all. I think in some ways it could be a very positive thing, but we'll get into the specifics of that more down the road. But I think first, I think Scuzz is going to take us down memory lane a little bit. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's one kind of piece of information I want to get like off of the plate in part because I think it's a misnomer to just read it uh, as it's been you know presented uh, in from like a, like just a straight statistical rundown. And then I want to get into a little bit of Bajakin's time as quarterbacks coach at the, with the Tampa Bay Bucks in the NFL. But I think like what's really going to inform us here is, is where John's going to take us digging into to the experience of BC. So um, where I want to start is Bajakin's experience as an offensive coordinator in college on the staff of Butch Jones. And he was with Butch for eight years 
uh, three at Central Michigan, three at Cincinnati, and then two at Tennessee. Uh, where, where he coached at Central Michigan, uh, Antonio Brown, and uh, Travis Kelsey at uh, Cincinnati. So he's had his hands on some big-name guys who, who made a name for themselves in the NFL. Uh, Taj Boyd and um, Jalen uh, Jalen Prater, was it, at Tennessee? What was the name of their uh, – Jalen Hurd um, at Tennessee. Uh, so, yeah, jo- yeah, Josh Dobbs. Names Northwestern fans don't want to hear too many words. <laughs> uh, did I say Taj Boyd? That that was a uh, – Yeah, that was he's Clemson. Yeah, that was a slip. Um, I guess I have Dabo on the mind. Anyways, um, point being, so Bajakian averaged – his offenses averaged an S&P Plus ranking around 49 during those eight years. Let's pause here and note that over this pretty much his tenure at Northwestern, uh, Mick McCall has been roughly 90th. Yeah, it's all relative. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to let that sit there for a second. So we're talking, I mean, let, let that like, breathe a little bit, you know. If, if history is to be believed, that's an increase of 40 slots, an average slot, which is higher than any year that, that McCall had, save for one. So again, just, you know. Smell that cheese for a second. Um, so I think, you know, I, we posted this on, on, on Twitter, and, and some of the immediate reaction was, well, that's mediocre, and gosh, there are a couple, a couple of real disturbing data points in there. And those data points would be his first year at Cincinnati, where they went from first the year prior under the old coaching staff to 62nd, and then his first year at Tennessee, where they went from ninth the year prior to 63rd. And what's really important to note is that both of those cases were a wholesale coaching change. So in 2009, Brian Kelly went 12-0 and with Cincinnati and took them to the Sugar Bowl. He had a quarterback by the name of Tony Pike, who was arguably the, the best quarterback in, in certainly modern recent memory at the University of Cincinnati. Um, he had his, his uh, 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 an up-tempo system that uh, he, he, he dominated everyone he played. The following year, they lost Tony Pike, a whole bunch of recruits, the entire coaching staff changed over. Like, that just changes things. You can't, you, you, like, you can't quite look at those, that, that, that change and call it a, 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 an indictment of Bajakian. What's important is that in the subsequent two years at Cincinnati, not the easiest place to recruit to, um, and you know, with, with decent competition around them, right. Be it Houston, Louisville back at that time, um, Navy, uh, Memphis, et cetera, et cetera, took that team from 62nd in 2010, all the way up to 34th, uh, in the country by, by, uh, two years later. Similarly at Tennessee in 2013, they've been ninth. They dropped down to 63rd. Again, that was a wholesale coaching change. One other the interesting thing about Tennessee. So in, in, in 2012, the year before Bajakian and Butch Jones and staff got there, uh, they played Alabama and Georgia. Those were two top five matchups and, of course, lost. They had a couple other top 25 losses against South Carolina, Mississippi State, and Florida, right? So so five ranked opponents. In 2013, check out this murderer's row. Number two, Oregon. Number 19, Florida. Number six, Georgia. Number 11, South Carolina. Number one, Alabama. Number nine, Missouri. Number nine, Auburn. Woof. Good grief. Um, so again, like with the wholesale coaching change and that, I mean, that is a dramatically different schedule, uh, uh, arduous level of scheduling right there. So I wanted to point, I just wanted to point that out because I think, I think Bajakian's college record to me 
speaks for itself and that he showed improvement and, and quality offensive coaching um, at three different stops. Central Michigan, if you remember, in the late aughts was, was, was a pretty good team with a pretty strong offense. Um, was hired away from Tennessee. He was not part of the firing of Butch Jones uh, and the champions of life uh, in Tennessee. He was hired away from Tennessee to go to the NFL and coach with the Tampa Bay Bucks. There are names to, to the points that, that you had, uh, Sam, some of the names you brought up, uh, Antonio Brown, um, Travis Kelsey. Uh, uh, Zach Caleros is a guy who, when he first took over the QB job at Cincinnati in 2010, was was not so hot. He, he, he kind of improved. Um uh, some of the some of the players of Tennessee, like he did a good, he did a pretty good job. Like again, infinitely better than what Northwestern has experienced the last uh, ten years. So then, you know, secondarily, I wanted to talk about his time at Tampa Bay because I think, again, the the the, the gut reaction to Tampa Bay Bucks, if you follow the NFL, is, well, Jameis Winston is an awful quarterback. Like, what do you mean this guy was the was the QB's coach at at Tampa Bay. Here's what you don't realize is that in 2018, the last year that he was at Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay averaged 8.6 yards per attempt. That was second only in the NFL to Pat Mahomes in Kansas City. They were far and away uh, the, the tops in the NFL in air yards per attempt. And these metrics are highly correlated with offensive efficiency because basically what it is is throwing downfield. It's attacking defenses downfield vertically. The Bucks led the league in passing first downs. Um, this was true for both Ryan Fitzpatrick and Jameis Wilson, Winston, who, who really split uh, split time that season. Um, this was far and away the highest uh, mark in terms of yards per attempt that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers franchise had ever achieved. Um, the second highest uh, number that they ever achieved, achieved was the prior year in 2017. This was arguably the best offense um, uh, at Tampa Bay. And again, Bajakian was just the, the QB's coach. So um, focusing on the QBs a little bit, uh, that year was, was far, far better, particularly from a, a, a TD to interception uh, a rate. That rate declined quite a bit in 2018. Newsflash, it's gone down even worse this year uh, since Bajakian has left. Like Jameis Winston left to his own devices, is throwing picks every other play. It's absurd. Um, but the, the, other, the other point being is that um, he was working under offensive coordinator Todd Munkin for three years, Dick Cutter the year before that. Uh, Dick Cutter took over as head coach. He was fired after the 2018 season. So there, I mean, there, you know, Bajakian was was beholden to some other some other avenues here of some coaches that aren't aren't you know considered to be like the leading the leading guys in the NFL and still put up spectacular numbers. Um, another thing worth noting: so so Cameron Brait and OJ Howard, two really uh, quality tight end players that uh, were part of that offense. And when you look at when you look at Tampa Bay's uh, receiving stats from 2018, you know, I, I think what, what you often hear about the Bucks is that they've got this incredible receiving core. They've got Mike, Mike Evans, if you remember him from the Johnny Manziel days at uh, Texas A&M. Uh, they've got uh, Chris Godwin, uh, an, an incredible downfield threat. But I think what's important to note is Evans, Godwin, uh, Adam Humphreys, Deshaun Jackson, O.J. Howard, Jaquiz Roberts, Cameron Brate and Peyton Barber all had 20 plus receptions in that 2018 year. That's, I mean, that's just spreading the ball around a ton. And I think when we get to some of the details around, around Boston college and what he's done there, I think what we're going to see is that a lot of the same concepts and approaches that Tampa Bay was running, Bajakian brought with him when he went back to college and had similar success 
without high-end recruits uh, or talented guys of the likes of Mike Evans. I mean, Mike Evans is one of the greatest receivers in the NFL right now in terms of his downfield ability. Same thing with Chris Godwin. Yeah, Godwin is like fantasy gold this year. And and, and I, the, the point is, is that those guys don't exist on Boston College right now, and he is still having a lot of success throwing the ball downfield at Boston College. Right, and I think... You know, one of the things that we talked a little bit about before the pod and before we pivot right into BC is I think what we can expect from him separately from being an OC as a quarterback's coach. And I think one of the things that you see when you talked about Tampa Bay is he's like he's going to coach these guys aggressively Um, They're Like to your point about Tampa Bay, like, I mean, none of us want NFL Jameis. College Jameis would be kind of nice. And they're... (laughs) Minus minus some uh, well on field off the field yeah on field Jameis um over but I mean like he wants to go over the top with these guys and again that you know it's a good segue to yeah to to the scheme and to what he wants to do as as an OC um from his time at BC and it's really fascinating first of all and I alluded to this earlier um you know Scuzz again took us back through. The previous eras. Um, I'd also, if you're looking for a written piece on this, I would encourage you guys to check out Kevin Sweeney, I think is the current head of WNUR Sports. Um, Sam and I's former stomping grounds got a great piece. You can go to WNUR Sports and check it out. That's kind of a look back um, at Mike Bajakian over the years and different concepts, etc. Um, I encourage you guys to check it out. I also, again, Louis Vacare, uh, amongst others, had you know recent articles with Mike Bajakian, where he talked about a couple things and one said, right, like, look, we, I'm looking to fit things to the personnel. I don't know what I'm going to run, etc. Some of that is definitely common sense stuff. I think some of that is really lip service too. The bottom line is, again, digest all of these things. It all matters. With that said, Mike Bajakian was almost certainly hired for the work he did last year at Boston College. When Pat Fitzgerald goes to sleep at night, the offense he dreams of is the 2019 Boston College offense. You can watch film of BC from last year and close your eyes and almost envision Darnell Autry in the place of A.J. Dillon and David Bailey running just under center power down your throat running um, with weight and force and having that be what the offense is predicated on now again there's a lot more to unpack than that and one of the things that we'll get to as we unpack that is it's really important to know and this is related to all the things that scuzz said about the things that bajakian the concepts that bajakian brought from his time at tampa bay to boston college because when you just scratch the surface the identity of bc in 2019 was similar to their identity in 2018 and 2017 but there were real differences there, um, and Mike Bajakian was responsible for those differences. I think. Well, a- and if if I might interject, just with like like the highline statistical view, just to, to tie it in a little bit with what we heard before. So, just a reminder: forty ninth average over the course of his his time in college, his BC offense was thirty seventh in the country in S and P plus, and that was an improvement from eighty eighth the year before. And correct me if I'm wrong, John. I mean, I know there was some injury stuff, but we. Like, they didn't have, like, some crazy dynamic freshman that showed up a la Randall Moore. No, and in fact, um, you could even kind of go the other way. Because the BC had a great 
I mean, for the past three years, their bread has been buttered with A.J. Dillon, who is six foot, 250-pound bowling ball <laughs> of a running back. Wow. And that's that's where they make their hay. The secret, though, is that the backup running back, against all physical probability, is basically the same player. David Bailey is 6'1", 240. So that's right. Their number one and two running backs combined are, what, 490 pounds of running back? Last year, Dylan was hurt or battling injuries for the vast majority of the season. And in relief, Bailey did nothing. This year, Dylan's numbers were awesome. Bailey's numbers were better. And a lot of that has to do with Bajakian's comfort in a certain type of offense. And we'll get to that in a second. A good place to start, though. Sorry, this, one, one, yeah, one yeah, quick ahead. thing that I think that's really important to note off the top here is that Unlike in those situations I described earlier at Tennessee and Cincinnati, at Boston College last year, Bajakian was the only change at at, at, an, at a offensive assistant coach position. The only one. Very and much you, like the situation he'll be coming into at Northwestern next year. And you can see the positive impact that it had at multiple different positions. Um, something Northwestern fans are going to care about, though, um, and this is an interesting place to start is, I watched a lot of tape on BC from last year. And at one point, I watched David Bailey, who again was the backup running back, who rushed for 850 yards at 5.8 a clip, which when you consider the fact that the starter had 1,600 yards, that's a hell of a lot of yards for two backs. But at one point against Wake Forest, um, who was a strong team in the ACC last year, and again, the ACC was kind of a mess, kind of like the Big Ten was last year, um, but... The Wake was one of the stronger teams, and BC played them in a close loss. And in one play, David Bailey came out. He was the back. Um, BC came out in a standard spread formation. I think they had you know wide receiver left, wide receiver right, standard spread to those wide receivers, a slot receiver, and maybe like a super back to the opposite side. The exact kind of thing you would see on, what, three quarters of Northwestern standard downs last year. It's something we're all very familiar with. And... They pulled a they pulled a guard right to left, opened a hole, and Bailey busted, you know, 25, 30 yard run. That run was significant because A, it was super similar to so much of what we've seen Northwestern try to run for a decade. And B, because it was unlike anything else I had seen on tape from Boston College up to that point. What you saw from Northwestern in terms of running the ball is not what BC did last year. The easiest way to sum it up is, Bajakian puts sets on the field that speak to the thing he is most often going to do out of that set. Now, we all know you can run out of a spread wide formation. Northwestern patented that in the Damian Anderson era. And we've really been trying to stick with that as much as possible, right? And you could go up to this year where we're, you know, late in the season, hope against hope. We're like, well, we're going to spread things out, um, try to create some misdirection and get Kyrick McGowan, Drake Anderson in space, etc. right? That is not the way Bajakian operated at BC. If he was spreading you out and putting a bunch of wide receivers on the field, he wanted to throw. And if he wanted short yardage out of that, he was going to throw shallow slants or screen passes or swings to running backs. But he was looking to throw first. 
With that said, BC was not a throwing team last year, and that standard Northwestern spread formation was not something that was very common on the field. What you see very often is tight or heavy formations, multiple tight ends on the field, or if there are three wide receivers at a single tight end, you're very likely to see two wide receivers bunched to the same side with a tight end. So, you know, you call it trips or three wide receivers, two wide receivers and a tight end left, but everyone's tight to the ball. So almost think about it like almost like in a sardine can. He doesn't particularly like to spread things out, but he's very, very comfortable in this kind of look. And he's very comfortable, and this is to one of Scuzz's points earlier, throwing aggressively out of looks like this. And also, John, what's interesting is, you know, kind of this goes on uh, with what he was talking about in his press conference uh, or his his media availability today is that, you know, he doesn't like to be, he doesn't call what he runs the spread. He doesn't like the, the, he doesn't like that term. You know, he's, he wants to run up tempo, but he, it's not the spread. Right. And the funny thing is like, you see, he'll put spread personnel on the field and they will, he'll, like, it's interesting to another one of Scuzz's points, those multiple formations. When people talk about pro style these days, it's not what it was 15 years ago. Pro style means multiple formations. This is an uncommon offense for the degree to which it alternates between shotgun and under center snaps. And whether it's shotgun and whether it's under center does not really dictate the frequency of run. What dictates the frequency of run is... How heavy is the personnel, but more importantly, how closely bunched to the ball is the personnel? And he will be more than happy. And you see, they had great success doing this. He'll put, let's say, two tight ends to the left side of the formation with a wide receiver. One tight end is on the line. The other two are, well, I mean, one might be on the line of scrimmage, but the other two are not tight to the rest of the linemen, but they're really close. He'll run, run, run out of that formation. It's a heavy look, um, and he, you know, it's almost like a Stanford type look, right? And you can go yeah, downhill. I, I, I was gonna say, like, you sent that picture, and I'm like, are we looking at Stanford's offense or like? And there's, it looked like like nine offensive linemen on the field, even even though the outer guys were receivers, it looked just like a massive offensive line front. What I like about it though is is it's it's not Stanford is much more of like a traditional pro. I, I set or offset fullback um, offset I type situation. What I've seen of, of the BC looks under Bajakian is it's generally more of like an aces set where, where there's, there's no blocking fullback. There's nobody in the backfield kind of, I don't know if I want to say telegraphing run, but I mean, that was, you know, you saw McCall deploy two two tight ends often and generally one was in the back backfield as a lead blocker. Well, and the to the, I mean, the juxtaposition again. It's like not to throw shade at someone who is now out the door, but the comfort Bajakian has in that sardine can is pretty darn impressive. And this goes on the ground again. Yes, AJ Dillon had a lot of success, but so did David Bailey who, again, had no success. The guy ran for like three-something yards a carry the year before, and this year it jumps up to 5.8. It's because Bajakian has a lot of concepts he can run out of that. Again, 
He'll show heavy, whether it's shotgun or under center, and then power run out of that. But when he throws, and he throws out of these sets, he likes to do it. He throws aggressively. The easiest way to sum this up is, and again, this goes right to what Scuzz was saying about air yards at Tampa Bay. So if you look at last year, Boston College only had three players who caught more than 15 balls. And their top receivers caught 26, 27, 26, 22, and 15 balls. That is two wide receivers and two tight ends. And that was basically their receiver core. Here's the long reception for each one of these players. Keep in mind, two of them are tight ends. 72, 64, 58, and 55 yards. Their leading receiver, Hunter Long, who is a 255-pound tight end, two-star recruit. His second best offer was UConn. Averaged 17.8 yards a reception in this offense. And when you look on the film, it's simple what they do. You can even look at Clemson, who otherwise throttled them, but when they had success offensively against Clemson, it was simple. They went heavy, and they put like two tight ends or two wide receivers and a tight end to the same side and slammed it into the line. Slam, 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 triple go route. You just fill as many seams as you can, and even those though those guys are bunched, they all go deep and they all go into different areas. And if you're having success on the ground... That puts big pressure on teams. I mean, we bemoaned the fact that we weren't going deep enough. Um, that's what he wants to do. Hammer, 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 deep ball. Hammer, hammer, well, deep ball. Well, and so so two just direct comparisons to Northwestern, right? Uh, Bennett Skronik and Cameron Green, not this past season, but two years ago in 2018, averaged 12 and a half yards per per catch for Skoranek who like every game took in like at least one 30 you know yard or 40 yard jump ball and then Cam Green the exact player that you would see in the Hunter Long role at Boston College last year averaged 8.5 yards per catch and that's because when McCall after going run run and you know the times he would run play action which which wasn't I think as frequently as Bajakian does it would throw a three yard out or a five yard curl or like this is, this is a different style of offense. And it's one that is in alignment with what some of the top offenses in the NFL are doing. So there, so like to, to me, there's kind of two major prongs of offense in the NFL right now that are like leading the pack. One is air raid and it's been big in college. It's, it's, it's big in the pros. It's Pat Mahomes. It's Andy Reid. It's what they're trying to do with Kyler Murray. It's, um, maybe a little bit what they're Baker. doing. Is, yep. Um, yep. Baker Mayfield and, and, and Cleveland. The other one, and I'm not as familiar with San Francisco. I, I'm, I'm, I'm biased a little bit based on George Kittle and how big of a role he has in that offense. But, but the other one, the Los Angeles Rams, a little bit, what are the Patriots used to do with, with their tight ends? Um, uh, the Minnesota Vikings and, and, and the way they play, like it is a, that, that's the Mike Shanahan offense. It's a run heavy offense that then uses play action and like some some trends that you can look at like go check this out the cowboys the the dallas cowboys success over the last two seasons you it basically boils down to one metric and it's how many times they run play action when they run play action a lot Dak prescott is unworldly and their offense can't be stopped when they don't run play action they suck horribly um 
it is it is one of the biggest um, analytics components that that is is driving offensive innovation in the NFL right now is how important play action is, and it's obvious, right? Like it 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 that puts tension on uh, all the players that are trying to defend both the, both the run and the pass uh, on safeties, on linebackers, etc. It makes it, it it's obvious. Um, it's an age old mechanism, and I think the other the other key here, if you heard what John described, it's it's these formations that have players with that, that have multiple options, multiple responsibilities. And most importantly, this is, this is a scheme. This is a system that, that this is not a series of play calls out of, out of a formation that, that, that on occasion, you know, we're going to run an end around. I think, um, you know, this is, this is a, a, a system that has got some demonstrated proof points that has worked pretty well. And I'm pretty excited about it. Absolutely. And I think you provide me with a good pivot point here to something that we haven't exactly talked about, which is, okay, so a lot of you are probably saying, yeah, 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 that's all well and good, but BC had 290 pounds of running back rush for, you know, what, 2,500 yards and 21 touchdowns. So that's where their bread was buttered. But how did this guy's going to be a QB coach? So how did the QBs fare in this offense? It's a really good question, and there's a lot of there are a lot of really good data points. And even though um, he was only at BC for one year, there's a lot to digest here, mainly in the form of Anthony Brown. Um, let me right out of the way before I get into Anthony Brown say that <laughs> last year, last week, last week, a, last week, Adam Rittenberg, w- you know, was on the pod, and I made a statement to the effect of. Um, Anthony Brown, I'm hearing that he wants to transfer. That's like my nightmare scenario. The last thing we need is one more quarterback. And really politely, Adam was kind of like, no dummy, we want to get him. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just want to say, I'm an idiot. Um, we absolutely want to get Anthony Brown in the transfer portal. Um, he's a good quarterback but he's a great quarterback in this offense. And that's one of the the key things here. So Anthony Brown was in his third year as a starter when Bajakian took over. The first year um, was an interesting year to juxtapose with this year because they had a healthy A.J. Dillon and he rushed for 1,500 yards. And remember, he rushed for 1,685 this year. So his production was fairly similar, yet their offense was way worse. And it's the difference between having a bowling ball for running back who can get yards and having him be the centerpiece of a dynamic offense and having an offense where you have a bowling ball running back who can get yards and you're not really doing much to help him out. Um, Anthony Brown was his first year as a starter, like I said, um, and he basically threw as many interceptions as he did touchdowns last year. I want to say it was like that year. It was like 11 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, something like that. The year after, Brown improved somewhat. And they needed him to improve because, again, Dylan got hurt and this offense just did not seem to have the ability without A.J. Dillon running the show to demonstrate anything on the ground game. David Bailey's lack of success being the main proof of that. Now, Brown's numbers got better. I think he threw like something like 20 touchdowns and maybe like 10 interceptions or something like that. He also was lit up that year. Um, one of the great ironies of last season is he was hurt last season and missed half the season in a season where he was sacked twice. The year before, he was sacked 19 times, I think. It was either 18 or 19 times. Um, he was lit up. And their offense still wasn't good, even though they were trying to rely on him more because they really didn't know what to do. 
So along comes Mike Bajankian. And Anthony Brown, um, again, you're thinking, all right, so he started the first half of the year. What kind of cupcakes were in the first half of the year? You're not wrong. Rutgers was in there. Richmond was in there. You know who else was in there? Virginia Tech, who they beat. And he was awesome against them. Wake Forest, who they lost a close game. Again, Wake Forest was a good team last year. His numbers were by recent Northwestern standards, freaking phenomenal in the time he was out there. <laughs> QB rating of 154.5, nine touchdowns, two interceptions, completed almost 60% of his passes. Um, the point my, is... My, my, fa- my favorite stat, so uh, yards per attempt, jumped from 7.4 in 2018 to 9.1 with Bajakian. I mean, that is, again, indicative of the offense that we are we are likely to see. Um it's also worth noting, like, they got a couple of grad transfers on O line last year at BC, but the the relative like recruiting rankings and past performance of these guys was not that dissimilar from what we have at Northwestern. Right. And what you saw with Brown was either they went spread and threw almost exclusively out of it. If it was a standard spread formation, they were letting him throw. And if they wanted short yards, they threw short and tried to set up. I mean, running backs across A.J. Dillon, David Bailey, and and uh, Travis Levy, their third running back, those guys were three of their top receivers. Now, they weren't in the top four, but if you cobble those guys' combined numbers together, there are more catches than any single receiver, tight end or wide receiver had on the team. So they like to do that out of that spread formation. That's where he looks for short yards or shallow slants to a guy like Kobe White, etc. Okay, But if they were in tight formations, and again, this is where BC ate their meals last year. Those bunch formations, tight guys, everyone close to the ball, under center or in shotgun. Scuzz mentioned it earlier, play action. Hit you, hit you, hit you, play action, throw deep, and Bajakian schemes guys open. Not wide open, but open. And that's where those numbers come from. And a great point of comparison, and this is where so much of the good study comes in, is Brown didn't play the whole year. He got hurt. And who replaced him? A walk-on sophomore quarterback, Dennis Grossel. Oh, God. Oh, God. It must have gone horribly. Oh, I mean, here's the thing, right? (laughs) Did it go amazingly? No. Did it go amazingly compared to how our quarterbacks did last year? Absolutely it did. And the easiest way to explain that is Dennis Grossel's completion percentage in all the games he started, which was half the season, was only 48.6%, which puts him right up next to Aiden Smith and Hunter Johnson in the completion percent category. Here's the difference. Nine touchdowns, three interceptions, six point yard, six point five average yards per attempt, which doesn't sound like much until you remember he completed less than half of his passes. Where was this coming from? Aggressive throws. It didn't matter that he was a walk on. When he threw, he threw deep. And he threw deep to guys who were open. So when he missed guys, the ball hit the field. It didn't hit a defensive player and get taken back for an interception. And again, it sounds like a subtle difference, but if you wonder how you can get a quarterback comfortable in an offense that wants to run the ball most of the time, that's how you do it. We harped on it all last season. For the love of God, where's the play action? We're hitting these guys, hitting these guys. Where's the play action? Go over the top. It's funny. We watched Ohio State. You know Ohio State, now granted, five-star cornerbacks. I get it. 
Ohio State played single safety high against us the entire game. Their cornerbacks were breathing on our wide receivers at the line of scrimmage the entire game. If you have Mike Bajakin out there, I mean, I saw it against Clemson. Mike Bajakin's like, that's how you're going to play it? We're bringing everybody in tight to the line. We're going to hammer, hammer, hammer you until we send all these guys deep at once. And we'll find out if you can cover them. We're going to see. Um, and But that would be the approach. The final thing I will say on this is Pat Fitzgerald, I'm sure, was very happy when Mike Bajakian signed on uh, to be ROC. You know who was freaking ecstatic? Kurt Anderson. This <laughs> offense is an offensive line coach's dream. It's show heavy ground and pound. Um, keep in mind, this was a good run blocking line last year. We lose Jared Thomas. Fingers crossed on Rashawn Slater. We return everybody else. A guy like Gunnar Vogel goes from a potential right right tackle, like I hope a guy doesn't get around the outside on him, to this is a giant road grader we're just going to throw downhill against this offense, against this defense. Um, keep in mind, again, we have Josh Preeb and Peter Skaronsky coming in, uh, two of the best offensive line recruits Northwestern's ever got who are absolutely run-oriented blockers, uh, downfield strength, mean guys. It's that kind of offense. Um, so again, yes, I know a lot of you, you know, you want to gravitate to it. Oh my gosh, are we just going to go like goal line on every play and stuff it into the line? That's not what this is. It's a run-first offense that wants to play to the strength of the personnel that's on the field except when it's hitting you with the thing you're not expecting. And when it's hitting you with the thing that's not expecting, that you're not expecting, that thing can be dynamic and effective. I like the hire. And one, one last note before we move on. Um, you know, John, you, you mentioned uh, that you know, Bajakian likes to scheme people open. And I, I'm just, you, you said that, and I immediately flashed back to the Purdue game. Uh, situation where David Bell was being schemed open and you and I were sitting in the stands watching every single play that David Bell was getting schemed open and um, we couldn't I, do that on the other side. Let me So let me tack right onto that because the guy we were juxtaposing that whole game, right, was Kyrick McGowan. Kyrick McGowan is not going to be schemed open in this offense the same way David Bell was, but he will be used heavily. Do not expect to see Kyrick McGowan at running back next year. If you do, again, I'll eat my words. I'm not a genius prognosticator, but everything I'm seeing on tape tells you we will not be playing a super huge rotation of wide receivers next year, but Kyrick McGowan will be right at the head of the list because he's big enough to block, he can go deep, and uh, he likes he is useful on fly sweeps. And it is not... The Mike Bajakian fly sweep is not the get out the body bag. Here comes, <laughs> here comes our guy. Here, you all know it's coming. Fly sweep. Um, it is effectively utilized in the offense, and the fact that all the wide receivers tend to be really close to the ball a lot of the time makes it really easy to run that quickly and effectively. Um, the, and, the guy, the guy they went to on that most often last year was Zay Flowers, um, right. a, a, a defensive back recruit, I might add, who carried the ball 26 times, averaged 7.6 yards per carry, had uh, 146 yard one that he broke for a TD, 
also caught 22 passes. Uh, again, an average yards per, per catch of 15.5. I mean, if that's not a perfect role for Kyrick McGowan. Or, I mean, if you look at Zay Flowers and Kobe White where they're two top receivers, it's Kyrick McGowan and, and Triple J. That's who you should be envisioning. These guys were the same level or lower level recruits than those guys. I mean, it's again, to discuss texted me at some point and was like, I'm looking at Tampa Bay. Their wide receiver core was loaded. Did BC have the same kind of thing? And I was like, no, no, they did not. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they were getting it done. It, this was not talent driving the way in the receiver core. Um, it was, we have just as much talent and just as much speed to get things done. So you, you briefly made mention of a couple offensive line recruits uh, committed to Northwestern. And real quick, I mean, we don't want to go spend too much time on this because, um, you know, we, as we record this on Tuesday night, the signing day is tomorrow, uh, is Wednesday morning. And it's entirely possible that when you're listening to this, most of Northwestern's uh, class will have signed and, you know, we'll, we'll be good to go. However, as we record, there's still some questions, and this is not a situation that Northwestern is used to uh, used to being in here. Um, you know, there's a couple a couple guys on the fence, perhaps that uh, we could see some surprises. We don't we don't get surprises here normally. At least one hat dance, uh, one possible decommit, um, and I, well, maybe we start here. John, you mentioned Anthony Brown. I don't know that he's going to be announcing anything tomorrow, but. Um, I did. I did just want to briefly say, like, for those who were listening to John talk about Anthony Brown, and yes, yes, we were, we were. Adam, Adam, ever so politely chided us for our for our myopic view that maybe we um, we didn't want another QB. I, I obviously, like, he's a talented kid. It, it like it always behooves you to have more talent in the room. We should absolutely go after him. It does not mean that we think that he would automatically come in and supplant Hunter or, um, Aiden Smith or. Uh, Andrew Marty, like who, like the the question of who the Northwestern QB is will not be answered via the transfer portal. I think you know we did talk about on that pod with Adam. It's very possible we could have a, a totally different set of guys or a mostly different set of guys in that room next year. Like who knows what's going to happen? But um, that is one interesting subplot. Probably not going to get solved tomorrow. But I think worth worth noting we we still ride for Hunter Johnson. We also ride for Anthony Brown if he decides to come to Northwestern because they're both they both have a lot of talent. Right. And, you know, speaking of this quarterback room and trying to get talent in, I think it's really interesting that, that looking at the tea leaves, Mike Wright, who is one of the two quarterback um, targets that we're looking at, a very highly thought of quarterback and UCF commit. Um, you know, I was looking, so apparently he had an official visit to UCF scheduled and did not take that official visit. And that there is a lot of talk now that he is down to Northwestern and Vanderbilt. And if you subscribe, you know, if you've been paying attention to recent flipped commitments, you know that Northwestern's looking pretty good relative to Vanderbilt right now. So that is certainly um, a possibility. And certainly, again, Mike Wright is a, considering the chaos involving the quarterback situation, especially in terms of Northwestern's class of 2020. Being able to land a player like that would be a really big deal and a massive get. On the flip and, and, and well, and he's got a full-on half dance scheduled for tomorrow uh, at right. his high school, right? So he, eight fifteen a.m. Yeah, right. So by the time you all hear this, we'll know. Um, but on the flip side, Abdurrahman Yassin, 
took a visit to Purdue just this past weekend. And suddenly, uh, a situation that had appeared rock solid forever suddenly seems scary and open. And again, it's not the most shocking thing in the world. Again, we changed coordinators. And I'm sure it's, you know, Mike Bajakian has got to sell a guy like Yassine on his role in a current system. And again, I've watched the film. I can certainly see that there is plenty of a role for a guy like that. But... You know, flex doesn't help anybody. And to Sam's point earlier on, like, Purdue can pop that David Bell tape right in and be like, this could be you next year. Um, so, well, Oh, it, my God. You, you put him with Bell and Rondell Moore? I, I, oh, that's, no. that's, that's That's the pitch. So it's... <laughs> just, just, just in case uh, anyone listening, is like, that name doesn't ring a bell immediately. So... Um, Yassim is, is a true four-star recruit at wide receiver. He's the first four-star like uh, true recruit as opposed to transfer recruit, I guess, I guess that Northwestern would have ever gotten at wide receiver. We had one a couple of years ago who ended up decommitting and going to Wisconsin. Um, it's a big deal. He also just went through he went through a lot this senior year. So um, he was was ruled ineligible for the season by the Michigan State High School um, Sports whatever authority um, on on some real BS, like the, like, I, I can't remember exactly what For it was. For basically being a really motivated student who like, yeah, he, he, like started, like he took college he classes, right? High school classes in, you know, he, I think he took like a, a couple high school classes back in like eighth grade or something That's like right. that. And he was homeschooled and, um, because he took a high school level class or something like that, that started his clock of high school play. And, uh, that clock ran out when he was you know, hitting his senior year. It was re- absolutely ridiculous, and you know it, it didn't take the uh, the Michigan board very long to say, "Oh, right, no, this is that was that's bad. That's yeah, our that bad. Was, Sorry, here you that go." That was dumb. Um, so I like the only reason I mention that is um, the kid's been through a lot in the last four months, um, and I, I think like if. I don't know if, if I had been through like some, some relative um, men- mental trauma and gymnastics of, of that nature that, that really kind of messed with my, my livelihood or my future livelihood. Like I, it, it would maybe cause me to take a look around as well. So this could be, this could be nothing but smoke. This could be him just doing, you know, his due diligence. He got a good look from Purdue and they seem pretty intriguing given what, what um, they can do on offense there. So I don't know, fingers crossed that we keep him. Cause that like, it's a big deal getting him and um, it would really be a bummer to lose him. I just, I just want to, to insert some good feels into this um, in terms of like the system. And, and again, how you could see like a guy like Yassine would need to be sold on the new system, etc. Just keep in mind that we have Peter Skaronsky in this class, Josh Preeb in this class and Cam Porter, who very well may play in college at like 5'11", 220 at running back. And is looking at this offense right now and being like, oh, good God, this is incredible. I'm just going to run over people all day. Um, so there's a lot of good feels in this recruiting class. It's just a little bit more drama on, you know, positive and negative than we're used to. Yeah, so we'll we'll do a full breakdown of the uh, of the recruiting class next week. Um, not entirely sure when next week's pod is due to uh, the Christmas and all the holidays, but we'll we'll get we'll work that out. We'll figure it out. Um, yeah, but, you know, also going along with the holidays as we transition our gaze to our 10th 
year of bowl previews. Um, you know, we, we kind of take a look at all of the bowl games out there. Uh, you know, honestly, you know, these first several bowls, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I watched much, if any, uh, of these group of five schools that are going to be playing in the, in the bowls, but, uh, there's still a lot of fun to look at. Um, I, I have, I'm having a hard time remembering any bowl games that have started this early. I mean, you've got two games on Friday, the 20th. Normally it's just on, like Saturday, the, the, it would be the Saturday, the 21st, which would just be a smorgasbord, like five or six games, uh, that opening Saturday, which is just amazing. I've never, I can't say I've ever seen, uh, Friday games. I, I just want to say Saturday night, a group of teams will be playing. And by the time those teams play, about, what, 12 other teams will have played. And the group of teams playing Saturday night would massacre every single one of the teams who will have played football up to that point. It's not exactly a murderer's row to kick off this early bowl season. Let's put it that way. But but these games can be a lot of fun. And, oh, you know, for as, sure. As, as we start off with the Makers Wanted Bahamas Bowl... Um, Again, Elk Grove Village. Elk Grove. Woo! Elk Grove Village picking up the sponsorship a second year in a row. Uh, you got Buffalo. How, and- how'd, how'd that work out for them last year? Uh, <laughs> like, you, you don't know. It's, it's nothing but skyscrapers and amazing civic projects in Elk Grove. It's either that <laughs> or a row of factories, Scuzz. I, I won't say which. I won't spoil it for you. Uh, so you got Buffalo and Charlotte, uh, both coming into the game 7-5. and five. Uh, Buffalo is a six and a half point favorite uh, over under 52 and a half. Have you guys uh, seen anything of the, either of these two teams this year? No, I would say, is this Charlotte's first bowl game? Um, they're relatively recent. I don't really, I, I don't know. It's their relatively recent transition though. This is, they were a FCS team until fairly recently. And I think they moved into the, into the conference USA and somehow seven and five in the conference in conference USA gets you into a bowl now. So, I mean, good on them. It's uh, the, the 49ers they're in. I, I would imagine that Buffalo will probably put it on them, but I don't have too much Intel on this game. I will say, I will say um, Buffalo did, you know, it as a feather in their cap, they beat, Temple, who at times this season was a very good team, thirty-eight to twenty-two. So um, Buffalo has a has a win like that on their resume. I'm pretty sure that Charlotte doesn't have anything of similar caliber. So that six and a half points is probably pretty accurate. Yeah, Buffalo definitely missing their quarterback from last year, who really made a a huge difference. And I, I know they don't they haven't had the the offensive uh, ex- explosive power that they did last year. Skuzmata likes Buffalo. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. All right. Uh, later on Friday evening, you've got the Tropical Smoothie Cafe Frisco Bowl, uh, Utah State and Kent State. Um, interesting note on Utah State. Uh, you've got Jordan Love, um, who is leaving Utah State uh, to go to the NFL. Um, he and three other guys got... Uh, arrested for with misdemeanor charges for uh, marijuana possession um what that does to his availability for the game well they, they've does... they've they've been cleared to play in the bowl okay as of seven hours ago all right um but yeah so love is going uh going to the nfl uh so this is you know i i, I know that there had been some discussion about 
know, if he would be best suited to uh, stay another year, try to put up some better numbers than he did this year, or just to, to take the jump to the NFL. And he decided instead of uh, hitting the transfer portal, he would uh, go to the NFL and, and see where see what happens there. But um, yeah, this game, I mean, Utah State had a pretty decent season. I, I can't say anything about Kent State. I, I mean, Utah State to me is fascinating because it's Gary Anderson, you know, after his really weird involvement with Wisconsin um, and then departure from Wisconsin, uh, ends up back at Utah State. And I don't know, things, things seem to be okay. Utah State is going to roll in this one, I think. They are so battle-tested this season. They played Wake Forest on the road. Again, Wake was good this year. They were at LSU. They played Boise. I mean, those are three great teams. And, they, again, they took it on the chin from Boise and LSU. But, you know, they, they lost at Air Force, Flexbone, you know, hard to say. Um, and BYU, you know, they also took it on the chin. But, again, overall, that's a group of five good teams. Um, and, you know. Utah State, I just think, is much more battle-tested and has just played a whole different level of competition. I don't know. Kent, Kent State got – I mean, they got hammered by Arizona State, Auburn, and Wisconsin. Yeah, true. So, I don't know. And, and they beat the aforementioned Buffalo as well. <laughs> um, you got the Celebration Bowl. Um, that's in the uh, – it's going to be in our picks. It's the uh, HBCU bowl game, a uh, couple uh, – FCS teams, uh, same team, together. same teams as last year. Was it was it the same as last year? Yeah. Ah, that that's yeah. cool. Um, you North got Carolina A and T and Alcorn State. Yeah, Alcorn State and North Carolina A and T. Yeah, this this is a game to watch. Yeah, it you know you don't get, um, you don't very often get the HBCU atmosphere on national TV. So I mean, definitely it, it's worth, uh, especially because it's going to be the only only game on. It's a uh, noon central kick on on abc so definitely worth uh worth watching some of that if if you can it's tough it's tough for me because it's it's i was a huge tennessee titans fan growing up and then lived in greensboro north carolina for three and a half years after graduating from northwestern and you're talking about uh steve mcnair's alma mater versus um the only Division One football program in Greensboro, North Carolina A and T. So, and if you're a Bears fan, Tariq Cohen's alma mater also. So, that's pretty much all I've got on that one. Uh, Fr- Fr- Fred McNair, coach of Alcorn State, any relation? I do not know. Probably, but maybe. Who knows? Maybe. Uh, you got the New Mexico Bowl sponsored by nobody. Um, I, did you guys hear about this? Like, oh, were, sorry, right. sorry. I got, I got to jump in. McNair is yeah. the brother of Steve McNair. Oh, well uh, done, Scott. Played play professionally as a QB in, in uh, the CFL for a while uh, and the World uh, Football Association as well. So, nice. Um, still, still coaching Alcorn State, trying to avenge last year's 24 22 loss to AT. Uh, yeah, so the New Mexico Bowl, um, 2 o'clock Central on Saturday. Uh, game without a, a sponsor did you guys have you guys heard the story with what almost happened with the new mexico bowl they almost got sponsored by a, a company that didn't actually exist yeah it was like oh. a huge disaster <laughs> oh my yeah it was like basically like a made-up company that no one really thought to check it was pretty dodgy um this game actually t- t- did like did the check bounce or were they like 
I'm I'm dying to know when when they found out that the company didn't exist because I'm like like, could, it, like it how like how, like, like they, they had like the the name was all attached to the bowl. Um, how, I mean, how close can we get to a Westlot Pirates Bowl without going to jail? I, I think the uh, the solid verbal probably has a bit more of an inside yeah. track than we do. Fair, mm-hmm. fair. Um, this actually game wise, by far the most interesting game that we've gotten to thus far. Basically because San Diego State is awesome defensively and Central Michigan scores a lot of points. Um, So it's, you know, unstoppable force versus immovable object. It really is. Um, Central Michigan, you know, this team scored 45 against Ball State, 48 against NIU, um, you know, 42, 42. They scored a lot of points in a lot of games. And San Diego State's only given up more than 20 points in a game twice this season. So, um it's kind of going to be a we'll see what Ben's kind of game. Uh, you've got the um, FBC Mortgage Cure Bowl in Orlando, um, Liberty and Georgia Southern. I I know almost nothing about Georgia Southern, but I know I'll be rooting for them. Go I, Georgia Southern! They they beat App State. Oh, that's in, in right. What was what was a really fun game. That's and right. I, I, that was App State's only loss. That's right. And they scored, I mean, a lot of points this season and lost. Again, this is a team that lost by three to Minnesota. Yeah, um, they, they gave Minnesota all they could handle. Um, played in some tight games. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that they run um, quick stat check here. But I believe that they are a super run-heavy offense. Um, yes, they are. Yeah, 30th in passing yards. Yeah, 3,131 rushing yards. This is Flexbone. So if you love option football and you love rooting against Liberty and Hugh Freeze, this is the game for you. Uh, so that's 2.30 on CBS Sports Network, um, you know, buried deep in the, in the annals of your cable box. Uh, Saturday... 3.30 Central, the Cherubundi Boca Raton Bowl, uh, SMU and Florida Atlantic. Um, SMU had had a really, really good season, 10-2 uh, and two on, on the year. Um, obviously ran into, like, that, that Memphis game was, it was insane. Uh, you had game day there. It was, that was a hell of a game. 54-48, they lost, but, geez, I mean, they, they, it was that was fun. I remember watching that and just really enjoying myself. Is Lane coaching this one, or is he gone? Nope. No, he Lane gone. is gone. I that's a foolish question. He did I not should, let I the door. Like, what is the he, classy thing to do? What is the opposite of that thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He didn't even stay long enough for the door to hit him on the ass on his way out. Yeah. So I would say that's all the more reason for uh, to pull for to uh, expect we, SMU in this one. And Willie Taggart uh, took o- is taking over, right? I believe at FAU. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I mean, obviously he's not going to be coaching the game, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I like, you know, Taggart knows Florida, uh, obviously it didn't work out at uh, Florida state, but I think that's a solid hire for FAU. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, Florida connections is the reason that, that a, he went back to Florida to, to take the Florida state job. And the reason that they were so intrigued by him, um, so you would think that he'd be able to continue to build a pipeline there. Um, interestingly, Georgia Southern's the team that almost knocked off Minnesota early on in the year. They lost by three. It was a really close game. Um, 
I will, I will be exceedingly interested in, I, I will watch every second of this game if Georgia Southern is winning. Uh, you've got the Camellia Bowl uh, at 5.30 Central, Florida International, and Arkansas State. Uh, the Camellia Bowl happening. Bowl game takes place at the Crampton Bowl in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, the, the only the only thing I've got is that uh, Arkansas State came pretty close within a touchdown of SMU. Um, they've got a, an OC that I thought I think is pretty good in Keith Heckendorf. We talked a bit a bit about him um, over the course of time here, and I think um, I don't know FIU not 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 feeling the love there for whatever reason. Uh, Seven thirty. On ABC, the Mitsubishi Motors Las Vegas Bowl, the last game, I believe, at Sam Boyd Stadium out there in the east side of Vegas. You got the Chris Peterson Bowl, uh, Boise right. State and Washington. Chris Peterson's final game as he uh, leaves Washington um, going up against his old team. Yeah, I think that's kind of going to drive this whole thing and everything else is going to take a back seat to that. But this is a huge, I mean, for this being a bowl game, this is a massive regional rivalry. Um that, you know, two teams that know each other very well, I think, compete for recruits. Obviously, Washington gets the higher level of player, but um, this is, you know, and then you bring Chris Peterson into it. This is going to be a, a fierce and exciting game. And for Boise, who, you know, is is thinking, you know, you know, I think part of them is thinking Memphis is taking our spot in the Cotton Bowl. Um, this is their opportunity to prove that they deserve to be there. So, you know, what's interesting. These two teams have only ever played four times. Really? Uh, and the last one was in 2015. So they played regular season 2015, 2013. In 2012, they met each other in the Las Vegas Bowl. Boise won that by two points. Uh, Boise also won the last matchup 16-13 uh, to 13 in Boise in 2015. So this is, I don't know, like, it's funny because they are regional. They know each other well. Chris Peterson bouncing back and forth. But they've they've got very minimal history with one another. I I can't help thinking that, like motivation is going to play everything into this, right? If, if, if Washington is motivated to play for Chris Peterson, he hasn't been there that long. Um, but I think he's generally well-respected. He, he's and liked. been there a while. It's like four, five, six years. Has it really been that long? It, it's been longer than you think. Wow. Um, so I mean, like if this is like, if this is a, Hey, we're going to win one for Chris on, on his way out. Like if they're motivated in that fashion, I think, I think Washington wins, I'm not going to say handily, but you know, I, I don't. I, I I think they've got certainly the edge and talent, et cetera. And then, you know, because this was kind of like a, I don't know, it felt like a little bit of a down year for Boise just because they weren't in the conversation late, and maybe that's just a, the nature of who they played and and what games they won and didn't win. Um, but I like they could also come into this from from a motivational standpoint of this is the opportunity for us to get back on top and springboard in the next season. I just, I think with whichever one of those like motivational components is more powerful. Um, these two teams I think are reasonably close enough from a, from a talent and execution standpoint that um, either one can win. I mean, Boise's only loss was a three point loss at BYU. Um, you oh, know, they did, right. they did go to Florida state and win. Not that that's, you know, saying much this year, but um, yeah, more than last year. Yeah, I mean their 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 schedule wasn't you know incredible, um, you know as far as you know packed with you know high uh, power five talent, you know Marshall, Portland State, um, FSU or their non cons, uh, and BYU. 
Um, they played Hawaii twice, beat the pants off of them both times, uh, once in the regular season, once in the uh, Mountain West Championship. Um, it, Boise is a solid team, but yeah, they, I mean, they have gone under the radar. You know, they, you know, I think a lot of it because that Florida State game, what, you know, for, speaks more to what Florida State did than I think what Boise did. I mean, Boise likes to schedule that big early game and go to someone's house and beat them. But, you know, in this case, Florida State just wasn't as good as they expected to be. So that might have taken a little bit of the shine off of Boise. Uh, last game of the night on Saturday, the RNL Carriers New Orleans Bowl, Appalachian State and UAB. App State. I, you, not, UAB. My, might I quote Adam Rittenberg and just say, Appalachian State is going to roll. Yeah, yeah. UAB, you won nine games. A lot of those were close. Cherish every one of those nine wins. Uh, it, and, you know, grip grip onto them tightly while Appalachian State is throttling you in this game. Uh, Monday, December 23rd, uh, 2.30 in the afternoon, the Bad Boy Mowers Gasparilla Bowl uh, down there in Tampa. UCF and Marshall. I mean, that's like basically a home. Well, it's not a home game for UCF. It's just right down the street uh, in in Tampa. But uh, I mean, UCF should roll on this one, right? I think so. But who knows? They might be like really stung by their 2020 quarterback recruit, recruit decommitting and going to Northwestern. <laughs> Amen, so, Amen, hey, that, that leads an emotional scar that I don't know they they can recover from in a week's time. Yeah, that's I, true. That's true. It's interesting. This game is a it's a big game outside of that for UCF because you know for several years they just had a stranglehold over the AAC and now a lot of teams are making insurgencies at them and uh, you know this is the kind of statement game that they need. I mean, it was only a year ago that they were playing LSU in their bowl game and now it's the Gasparilla Bowl and you know they better win because they got to keep up with the Joneses all of a sudden. And the last game we'll preview for tonight, the uh, SoFi Hawaii Bowl. You got Hawaii and BYU. What a what a matchup! I love this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, so a like like BYU and the the connections between um, that school and uh, Polynesian culture and Hawaii. Like, there's just like. There's a ton of BYU fans on on the Hawaiian Islands. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Th- like, th- like this is again. I don't think these two teams have a ton of of history necessarily. I'm going to look it up on Wikipedia as I talk here, but at the same time, like schools that are very familiar with each other, players and families and coaches that are very familiar with each other, and I just I, I think it's great. I think both these teams. Um, are capable of, capable of producing some fireworks, particularly Hawaii. And I think this is going to just be like a fun, high-scoring game. With um, I, I just I I think it's going to be I think it's going to be really really entertaining. Um, and I think it's a I think it's a, they did a great job with this matchup. Um, these teams have played each other. Uh, Thirty-one times. Yeah, they used to be in the in the whack together, right? Yeah, they were in the whack together. So they played every year, basically, from like nineteen seventy-eight up until the late nineties, early early two thousands. But um, they've only played twice in the last. Uh, in well, I, I, it looks like four times in the last decade. So um, with BYU winning all four of those matchups, but I don't know. Hawaii's got some some firepower at QB, et cetera, this year. I mean, they could uh, they could make some noise. 
I'll say this for Hawaii. Anytime Hawaii football is good, one thing they can sell to players, this will be their 15th game of the season. Um, they, you know, they play 13 in a standard year because of the special Hawaii rules. They got to play in the championship game. They won the Mountain West West this year. Um, and, you know, as a result, played Boise twice and got brutalized by Boise twice, but still. And that now now they're playing game 15, which is pretty crazy for a team that's not in the CFP. So, but still, nine wins, looking for 10. Good for them. So we'll we'll leave it there as far as our previews go. We'll come back next week and uh, get into more of the Power 5 games. Um, you know, we got the New Year's Six coming up, the the playoff coming up. Um I, I believe next week we'll we'll get into all that. Um I think real quick before we go, I, I do want to mention something that uh really just came across the uh the news wires um as we were recording. Uh Hayden Fry, longtime uh Iowa head coach, uh passed away tonight uh at the age of ninety. And you know, I know yeah, there's a lot of history between Hayden Fry and Northwestern. Um, you know, ask Gary Barnett how he feels about Hayden Fry and, you know, Fitz as well. But, uh, there, there's no disputing the fact that he was a, a hell of a coach and really did a lot to build up Iowa into what they are today. Absolutely. And, and I was one of those teams. I mean, we saw Fry play, I mean, coach when we were in college, but I was one of those teams that's fortunate that you fold Fry and Kirk Ferentz together. Um, that's two guys covering a massive amount of time. Um, and it's stability like that's impressive. And he had an impressive run. Well, and I think, I, 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 I think there are not many other coaches that have had kind of the, um, the same widespread impact from a coaching, coaching tree perspective. So one of the things that's going around on Twitter right now is the 1983 coaching staff that featured um, Bill Snyder, of Kansas State fame, uh, Kirk Ferentz, of course, Hayden Fry, um, and then Barry Alvarez and Bob Stoops. Wow, Not all bad. on the same staff. That's that's pretty ludicrous. And Brett um, Bielema coached for him as well. Pretty, pretty amazing. Oh, yep, yep. That's and probably played for him too, right? Oh yeah, yeah. He walked on. Yep. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, I have some. I don't know, personal gripes about some of the stuff that Hayden Fry did vis-a-vis sure. like painting the visitor's locker room pink and some of the things that he said and the implications. But I like, I don't know. Um, he was a pretty, a pretty staple coaching experience for the 1980s and, and was very successful with Iowa. So um, yeah, obviously, uh, obviously sad news. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll be back next week with more bowl previews, uh, get more into basketball. Um, you know, uh, they were off this past, you know, both men's and women's were off for finals this past week. Um, but, uh, starting up play again, uh, Northwestern has Michigan state coming up, I, I believe tomorrow or the day after. Uh, so that, that could be, it could be interesting. Um, in any case, uh, and yeah, we'll be back again with, uh, with signing day information. Um, we'll cover all that next week as well. Uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and leave it there for tonight. Head to our website, westlawpirates.com, uh, for comments and questions. Be sure to sign up for our uh, Westlaw Pirates Bowl Challenge. Um, all of that information will be, like I said, on westlawpirates.com, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the wonderful avenues of social media. You can email the show, westlawpirates at gmail.com. 
Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics and look for us in the West Lawn O'Brien Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Skazby and Sam Walter, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.